Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hey. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. John Epperson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Dave Aronson. Hi, everybody. Now, Dave, do you want to just remind people who you are? Okay, well, I am a software development consultant, meaning not only do I sling code, but I also help companies write better code faster. For the past several years, my main language has been Ruby, so that's one of the reasons I'm appropriate for this particular podcast. Good deal. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. I think last time we had you on, we talked about mutant testing, didn't we? Uh, you may have talked about mutation testing with somebody else, but this is the first time I've been on your podcast. Oh, I'm finding a Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm like, I, and I, for some reason, I had it in uh, my head that we've talked before. So uh, No, but at Abstractions Conference last year in Pittsburgh, Brittany Martin did interview me on mutation testing for the Ruby on Rails podcast. Yes. Okay, good deal. Well, sorry for the confusion. People can go check out that episode as well. But yeah, do you want to just uh, give us a little bit of an intro? Let us know who you are and why you're well-known and all that stuff. Okay, well, I'm not sure I'm that well-known yet, but uh, I've been doing the conference speaking circuit for the past couple of years. Obviously, COVID's put a bit of a dent in that. The main topic I've had any success with is mutation testing. So I've gone as far west as Hawaii and as far east as Chisinau, Moldova, often dubbed Europe's most boring capital, but at least it was a decent conference. Hey, there you go. Very cool. Well, yeah, we brought you on to talk about mutation testing. Do you want to give us kind of the 10,000 foot view on what it is and how it works and then we can start asking questions? Okay, well, the 10,000-foot view kind of depends what angle you want to look at it from. From a rather academic sense, you could say it assesses the semantic coverage of your test suite. And to that, you'll probably get one of two responses, either, huh, or so what? So I prefer to describe it as a way to make sure that your code is meaningful and your tests are strict. Even that, some people are going to say, okay, what do you mean by that? By having your code be meaningful, I mean that any little change to it is going to have a noticeable effect on its behavior, either its outputs or its side effects if you're not doing pure functional programming. And by your test suite being strict, I mean that any such noticeable change will indeed be noticed and cause at least one of the tests to fail. So one of the things that may be a little hard for some people to grasp at first is that the strictness isn't something about each individual test. It's your test suite as a whole. Something in there has to notice this change, but any given test doesn't have to be super strict in itself. It's a team effort, if you will. One of the things that I noticed when I was looking at your talk one of the things that I care a lot about are useless tests. Uh, mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, if you're just testing Rails, that Rails works, right? Or that you're just testing... Well, that one that one actually might be caught by new testing. Test. By the way, the point is that uh, if you have useless tests, things that don't actually test anything or whatever, like I'm a huge fan of just being like, all right, let's delete these and throw them out. Like It's just mm -hmm. wasting our time in our test suite. It's not doing anything. It's giving us false... Uh, false confidence when we it's not doing anything, right? And uh, mm -hmm. one of the things that I felt like you were trying to say during your talk was, this susses some of that out. Hmm. The particular examples you mentioned, like testing your framework, it should already be well-tested, so your own tests are useless. But I don't think it's quite that kind of test that is going to be 
as you say, sussed out. The tests that will still pass are perfectly fine to have there. What mutation testing usually prompts you to do to your test suite is either tighten up a particular test if it's not specific enough or add additional tests to catch some various cases that you might not have thought of that are incorrect but still let your tests pass. Uh, Perhaps this would be a good point to dive into how it actually works. And I'd like to do that by way of analogy to something a lot of us have probably done. Uh, Suppose you're adding a feature and your feature is one such that a reasonable test for it would already pass the tests you've already got. Uh, Suppose you're just testing some edge case, making sure that's covered correctly. So if you're doing TDD with red-green refactor, then you want to see a red. How do you do that? One of the ways is to deliberately break your code. So suppose the function is something like calculate the hypotenuse of a right triangle given the two other sides. So your formula would be the square root of a squared plus b squared. You might do something like change it to a squared minus b squared just to have the thing break. Now, there's a lot of different ways you could break that. And you'd be kind of tempted on something much more complicated to try and break it in several different ways. Mutation testing basically automates that process, creates a bunch of different slightly altered versions of your code, and then checks to make sure that at least one of your unit tests will then fail. Now, of course, this presumes that the tests you've already got on there passed with the code that was right. So a fully passing test suite is pretty much a prerequisite, at least for the specific code you're mutation testing. Usually you can narrow it down to a particular class or module or function or method, whatever. Does that help clarify why these particular useless tests would not really be pointed out. I think so. So instead, what I should be saying is it would catch, for example, if, um, I don't know, I put a zero as one of my, I I don't know, I had set up zero as one of my variables to go into this calculate, you know, a squared minus b squared, right? And therefore it passes, but, or a squared plus b squared, sorry. But then as soon as you switch to minus, you know, like minus zero squared is still, it would still pass and therefore fail our mutation testing. So it's a bad setup of my test. Right. There are two main benefits, like I said, making sure that your code is meaningful and your tests are strict. Opinions will vary as to which one is the primary benefit. If you've been really good about writing tests that cover things well, including all edge cases, corner cases, and whatnot, then the primary benefit will be to suss out the code that isn't very meaningful. But most code bases I've seen haven't really had all that great care on the test front. Maybe, of course, the code bases we great engineers would produce, the five of us. Yes, of (laughs) course. But um, otherwise, I think the main benefit that mutation testing will bring will be to say, hey, uh, if I change your code in this way, then all the tests on it still pass. Might want to take a look at that, see if you've got a bug lurking there. And well, sometimes you don't, but sometimes you do. Yeah, but it increases my confidence that my test is actually then not giving me false positives, right? So if a bug isn't introduced, you said there might not be a bug there now, but if I introduce one later, and Mm -hmm. I know it's going to come back and go, "Uh uh-uh, Chuck, you blew it, right? Yes, and that I think is one of the large, sometimes ignored benefits of doing TDD or otherwise having very high test coverage in the first place. It basically uh, acts as a regression test suite, uh, or as I put it in a blog post from, I think it was 2012 or 2013 or so, it gives you guardrails. So how does that work? Does it, does it just like kind of search and replace plus and minus? Well, I haven't 
peeked under the hood of the various tools too much, but the impression I get from at least discussing it is that they have a stock of mutator objects that know how to mutate various kinds of nodes in an abstract syntax tree. So you might have a mutator that says, hey, I'm going to swap the arguments anytime I see a minus node. So if you've got a calculation that says, um, got somewhere in there x minus y, it's going to turn that into y minus x. Yeah, I think another one that I've heard that it does is it'll change an if to an unless. Mm-hmm. It can basically change the sense of any sort of comparison, whether something is to be true or false or greater than, could be turned into greater than or equal to or less than or less than or equal to or exactly equal or all kinds of things. It can swap uh, operators. It can even change a value to another value. Like if you've got x plus y, you could change that to x plus zero or one or minus one or infinity minus infinity, max int, min int, both signed and unsigned, positive, negative, whatever. Might even toss in some random numbers in there. So this is like fuzzing a program, but from the inside. Yes, I have sometimes referred to this as fuzzing your code rather than fuzzing the data. Except fuzzing tends to be, from what I understand, having not exactly specialized in that, um, tends to be fairly random. Whereas with mutation testing, you may have occasionally some element of randomness, but usually you have this stock of mutators and the program is going to parse your code into an AST and traverse your AST and apply whatever mutators apply to the situation. And it's going to do it pretty much the same way every time. And so just a point of clarification. So mutation testing, there's actual gems out there which handle all of these different mutation cases. So for they have some for mini tests, looks like a mutant dash mini test. And then there's others for our spec and stuff. So before, when we started this call, uh, honestly, I wasn't very familiar with mutation testing. I thought it was more of a practice or a methodology or idea more so than an actual process that you apply into your application. Right. It's basically uh, automating a process that you could do manually, trying to mutate your code in every way you can manually uh, would just take ridiculous amounts of time, whereas a mutation testing tool can generate and evaluate, uh, depending exactly what language and the horsepower of your machine and whatnot, hundreds, possibly thousands of mutants per second. And what does your output look like? Does your output basically then come back and say, these are the tests that failed as expected, and these are the tests that passed as not expected? Usually the report tells you what mutants, uh, as the current terminology goes, survived. In other words, let all the unit tests still pass. And that's what you don't want to happen. So having it focus on those rather than the ones that failed as expected Uh, This saves you a lot of wading through irrelevant stuff. So, for instance, a report might tell you, if I change this function, uh, which is in this file at this line, usually gives you that kind of helpful information. In this way, then all the unit tests survive. And in this way, if I change it, all the unit tests survive and so forth. So it tell you basically, uh, here's the original and here's the changed version. And having that comparison right there can really help you figure out, okay, what's the difference between these two? What should I be checking for in some test? Then you can take a look at your test suite and realize, oh, duh, I forgot to check for that particular type of case and add a test to handle that. One thing that I'm wondering about a little bit with some of this is, I like to run my tests. I have a test runner that runs the tests that have, you know, for the code that I've changed. 
I'm wondering, can I run this on my machine at that time? Or is it going to take way too long and I need to just drop it into my CI and say run this every day or something? Well, that depends on a number of variables. You generally won't want to mutation test your entire code base uh, very frequently. Usually you can narrow it down to a particular class or function or module, whatever, and uh, just mutation test that. Or some of them also have a mode where it looks at the Git history, at least the state of what has changed since your last commit, and it'll mutation test that. A reasonable-sized system being mutation tested on, for instance, my 2014 Mac Mini might take you know, an hour or two, or for uh, a large system, might take you know, enough to justify running it overnight. So you want to try and narrow it down. And how long that takes, of course, depends how far you narrow it down, how complex that code is, blah, blah, blah. But you could get some useful results in you know, a matter of 10 seconds or so. It kind of seems like the, the main benefit that you're getting, right, regardless of maybe confusion about its exact stuff, is it's basically grading in some respects, your test suite, right? Yes. Checking for, you know, I guess, completeness slash false mm-hmm. positives, things like that, right? Right. So, and you're also pointing out that it has a clear performance like problem here. Uh, so you can't run it all the time. So what in what's sort of like the right balance? Like, how do you, how do you set it up, right? So that this trade-off like makes sense, if that makes sense. Well, I think the most practical use would probably be to commit early, commit often, and mutation test what you've done since the last commit. Now, some people don't like to commit early, commit often, and then squash before pushing to a central repository. But I find that's a very useful approach for me. If you don't want to do that, you could do something like mutation test a larger batch before you go on some kind of break, whether it's the occasional bio break or lunch break or whatever. Or you could even mutation test your whole thing overnight. I take from that that basically it's still kind of, uh, it's still situational here. Yes, very situational. And the the longest part actually, so long as you do a uh, fairly small mutation testing run at a time is not so much the generation and running of the mutants, but the analysis, figuring out, okay, this bunch of mutants survived. What does that mean? How are they surviving? What should I do about it? And unfortunately, we haven't automated that quite yet. Sure. Is that a difficult thing? I mean, you're implying that it's difficult to think through, and I can really see, I mean, okay, so it's one thing for me to test my code with the unit test, right? Get a failing test, and then be mm-hmm. like, okay, think about it, all right, I can fix this test. Usually that's like somewhat fairly straightforward, and even if I'm not in a perfect frame of mind, like I can generally hack my way through it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like on a bad day or something. How How much steeper is fixing a broken unit test, right? Because I'm thinking about it in sort of an opposite manner of sorts. Well, it's not so much usually a broken unit test, but a missing unit test. You have some sort of edge case usually that you didn't account for and nothing in your test suite will catch that edge case. This isn't the fault of any particular one unit test. They're all missing it. So you have to figure out, okay, what is the actual difference in the operation that I need to be watching out for? For instance, suppose in your hypotenuse example, the mutant that flipped plus to minus lets all your test cases pass. Well, that's probably only going to happen if you did indeed pass zero as your only value of the second side. So you got to figure out, hmm, how can we make this plus that 
not equal to this minus that. Well, pass in something that's not zero. Yeah, sure. I, I didn't. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at is like, is that process of saying I'm missing this thing, I need to add this thing, right? Like, I'm imagining it to be somewhat more difficult, but I was just kind of curious since I'm assuming that you've at least done this a few times. I was just kind of curious if you bit. felt like it was if it was a step above or if it's eh, it's whatever. It's about the same. A step above what? Coming Sorry. up with a unit test in the first place. Yeah, so I have okay. a mute. Yeah. yeah, I have a unit test. I theoretically know why I wrote this unit test. It's not broken. Therefore, I have my reasoning right there in front of me. And so it's fairly easy to fix my unit tests that are broken. Right. It's filling in a missing one. I feel like that seems harder when I want to add new tests. I think it's sort of a two-step process. First, you have to realize what situation needs to be tested. And then you have to go and write a unit test for it. Uh, once you know what needs to be tested, yeah, writing a unit test for that is going to be the same pretty much as writing any other unit test. The trick, and you'll probably get much better at this the more you do it, is looking at a mutant and figuring out, as I put it, what it's trying to tell you, the reason it's surviving and why that reason might be something you want to stop, something you want to catch with a test that would fail if that happens. I'm, I'm kind of working through my head as far as what constitutes a surviving mutant. So um, if I have uh, two tests and the mutant causes one test to continue to pass and the other, to continue, or the other one causes it to fail, did it survive? Or? No. Okay. A, a surviving mutant, I mean backtrack a bit on how this basically works. First, the unit, I mean, the mutation testing tool parses your code into an AST and then tries to pick it apart into pieces to test. And this is usually going to be our methods. It'll then look up, okay, this method is covered by this test, this test, this test, and this test. And how that actually works varies. So let's just sort of hand wave over that for now. Then it'll create a bunch of mutants by changing that method in any way it can, usually one at a time. It's a bit of a point in dis of discussion in the mutation testing community whether to allow multiple mutations, but for now, it's almost always just one. Then for each of those mutants, it'll run the test suite until one test fails. And once one test has failed, it doesn't need to know whether any of the other tests that hasn't run against that mutant yet are going to fail. Like so much in computer science, we only care about ones and zeros here. So either it lets all the tests pass or it makes at least one fail. When it makes one fail, the current terminology is that that is killing the mutant. And this is a somewhat controversial point these days because the tech industry is starting to get very sensitive about marginalized people and whatnot. And in the comic books, mutants are often used as a metaphor for assorted marginalized groups. So I'm trying to come up with a better terminology, and we can discuss that later on. But for now, let's stick with the industry standard and say that that's killing the mutant. So a surviving mutant is one that doesn't get killed. In other words, one that lets all the unit tests still pass. Does that help? Yep, absolutely. So you could fix any given mutant that is surviving by essentially adding another assertion or another test that would cause the test suite to fail. Right. On that mutation. Every mutant should make at least one test fail. It doesn't have to make every test fail, but it should make at least one fail. So then does it, when it survives, does it give you a report, this is what we changed and... Mm -hmm. and okay. Isn't this going to break red-green refactoring? Because green, as we all know, is the color of mutants. <laughs> so, uh, so now we've got this extra step, which is also green. Uh, you could sort of consider it part of refactor. Red, green, and then apply assorted quality assessment tools like RuboCop and Mutant and whatnot to make sure that you're code is nice and pretty and properly object-oriented and meaningful and your tests are strict. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just stuck on the kind of green here. I, I can't think of anything to call it other than mutation. That's a really hard, hard thing to rename. Evolution is difficult. Could be, but I, I don't think it really needs to be a specific step of its own in the TDD cycle. We, we can just classify it as part of refactor. It could be another color with maybe a little green in there. Toss in some blue as well. And uh, I forget how all those colors work. I'm a back-end developer. So <laughs> I think that gets you what, yellow? I don't know. Yeah, but red-green refactor will also mitigate some of the issues that you're trying to solve with mutation testing in the sense that you're going to write a test that doesn't pass and you're going to write code that mm-hmm. makes it pass, right? And so at least initially, it's not going to be something that's just going to skate through no matter what. Now, right. it may not be, as you said, strict or complete, but you know that, that's, what, that's what the mutation testing is going to get you to. But the red-green refactor will actually catch anything that will just pass by virtue of what you've already written or what the framework does. It will make sure that there are some unit tests for it to run. If there are no unit tests, what happens kind of depends which tool you use. Some of them will skip that particular piece of code. Uh, Fortunately, most of them will say, hey, you've got this code not covered by any tests. And again, you should do something about that. But some of them will then use the whole unit test suite, which of course is horribly inefficient. Yeah, so this actually, I think I think I slightly disagree with what you were saying, Charles, because yes, in the spirit of red green factoring, right, if I'm doing the job that I intend to do, I would write a good test, right, and good code that then, you know, makes that test green again, right? And I think the job of this tool is to say, actually, the tests that you wrote maybe wasn't so good or it didn't cover some use cases or something like that. So you still wrote the test. You still perform, you can still perform the action, right, of following red-green um, refactoring just as you can sort of follow the action of having good code coverage, right, but not having a great test suite, right, that gives you high confidence that changing something won't break stuff, right? So I can have great code coverage and still have a terrible test suite. And I think that this is kind of fitting in that space of, uh, okay, well, you are following the action, but you sort of like left the spirit of things. And here's a way to sort of measure that in another way. Yes, it's not so much that you really left the spirit, but it didn't really complete the job. You might have even thought you completed the job, but this will fill the gap, as you put it, between having decent test coverage in the sense that each line is at least exercised by something in your test suite versus testing that that code actually made some difference. Or as uh, some of the more academically minded people put it, it's covering the semantics of your code as opposed to the lines or the branches. Uh, Covering the lines is a good start, but even 100% coverage of the lines is not sufficient. You need to figure out, do those lines actually mean what you think they mean? Are they they meaningful, really? Yeah, and I see this mostly in the vein of more of the you know, like you said, maybe Rubocop or, you know, some of the other static analysis tools that we have out there for Uh our code. And so what it does is it gives us feedback. Now, I agreed with John that we should be writing a good test, but this is also a feedback tool that will teach us what a good or complete test looks like as well. Uh And so what you may be looking at instead is you may be looking at things and going, all right, I wrote these tests, I wrote the best that I can, and I figured out that, you know what? Um, I need to be a little bit more mindful about greater than versus greater than and equal to. And so, you know, going forward now, I'm going to test the equals case and make sure that it does whatever I need it to do. And so mm-hmm. it, I, I can see it kind of filling both needs. But yeah, I hesitate because uh, I want that fee- fast feedback loop to loop it into a red-green refactor workflow. I, you know, I, I want to run this later, get the feedback, do the learning, and then make sure that I'm doing uh, the professionalism and the, the type of work that I should be doing from there. 
And so I almost see it as almost a code review, right? It's just that it's uh-huh. programmatically going in and messing with the code to make sure that it, you know, it's resilient to change. Yes, you could view it easily as part of the uh, movement over the past several years to automate what people used to do in code reviews. Tools like RuboCop will automatically enforce the style that your team has agreed upon. So you don't need to waste human time on arguing over, oh, are we going to use two spaces per control level or four? Well, let's compromise on three. No, 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 no. Just have the tool do it and don't bother asking a human for code review until it passes RuboCop. And we can do similarly with the various mutation testing tools. You know, don't bother asking for, you know, don't make your pull request or whatever until it doesn't come up with any surviving mutants. Right. That, the, the other thing that it does is it allows us then to focus, if we are doing code reviews, on the substantive things like, why did you design this class this way? You uh-huh. know, why did you use this design pattern? Did you know that there's a design pattern that works for this that you've kind of halfway imp- implemented because you didn't realize that there was a, you know, an already reasoned out way to do this that solves 90% of our problems? Or and so even can, a gem that implements it. Yep. And so that that's the kind of thing that I think the code reviews are meant for. And so, yeah, if you uh-huh. can automate the other types of feedback and you're paying attention to the feedback, then I think this is something that can really pay off. Exactly. Have you thought about learning how to build machine learning apps? Springboard offers a machine learning engineering career track that's similar to online machine learning boot camps with the difference that it follows a project-based learning methodology where students work towards creating their own portfolio of machine learning models. Every student is paired with a machine learning expert who provides unlimited mentorship and support throughout the program via video conferences. Most students who take Springboard's machine learning engineering career track take it because they want to learn how to build machine learning algorithms. They want hands-on experience in deploying machine learning models into production. They want to learn how to build and deploy deep learning prototypes. Springboard offers a job guarantee on all their career tracks. That means that you don't have to pay for the program until you get a job in the machine learning engineering space. Ruby Rogues is exclusively offering a scholarship of $500 to eligible applicants. Make sure you use the code AISpringboard when you enroll. There are only 20 scholarships available for students who enroll. You should check if you qualify by applying. The application is free and it takes 10 minutes. Scholarships will be awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. You can sign up at devchat.tv MLE. Yeah, we're really trying to reduce decisions at the end of the day. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of why I'm like really interested in, well, how much decision-making is involved in fixing, right, a surviving mutant versus like, okay, well, if I don't use mutation testing, right, then I am putting all the decisions on whether or not your PR is adding to the test suite appropriately, right, on a human person, right? above and beyond whatever my code coverage tool tells me, right? So, you know, which which decision is harder? And, and that's, it sounds like it's kind of, I think it's just too unfamiliar for me to to walk out of here with a judgment, of course. But yeah, it's just an interesting problem. Yeah, well, the unfamiliarity is not at all surprising. One of the things that makes this a great topic to talk about at conferences is that most developers haven't even heard of it. So even though I still consider myself more or less a beginner at mutation testing, I know more than most people because most people know nothing. So who's, who is looking for mutation testing? What, what kind of project, uh, what kind of company is sitting there going, oh, we've got this, we've got this problem with all these, all these tests. You know, what, what problem does this solve other than uh, improving quality, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the people who would be looking for this are mostly those who actually would be looking to improve quality uh, of the code and of the test suite. If your code is something that needs to be pretty much exactly correct, like, say, anything in you know, some of the canonical high-risk industries like avionics, implanted medical devices, uh, finance, whatever, then um, 
you might want to look at whatever you can reasonably easily do to improve your code quality, in particular with regards to correctness, which is verified by your tests. So you want to improve the code quality, not the code quality, but the testing quality of your tests. And that makes mutation testing a pretty good fit there. There's been very little call for it among my clients, but I started actually getting into it after having heard about it long ago because my current main client actually said, hey, let's look into this and see if it would be appropriate to add to our suite of quality assessment and enforcement tools. So, so I presume they did. And uh, what did they get out of it? What, what, what I'm looking for is something concrete where people can say, do you know what? I've got this, this specific problem, like my tests are too taking long to run. And uh, this is a sign that you should start looking at mutation testing. Okay. Unfortunately, like I said, I'm still somewhat of a beginner at this. And my current main client hasn't really opted to adopt it. So we've, we've got bigger fish to fry at the moment. So it's a bit on hold. And most of my experience with it is from tiny little toy projects on my own and lots of reading about it. Could it be a form of open source self-defense where if people keep kind of adding tests to your project, you could use it as a way of kind of justifying rejecting them and saying, look, this doesn't, this doesn't actually do anything? Well, like I said earlier, it's not so much good at spotting bad tests as missing tests. You could use it as, if I understand what you're saying correctly, a defensive wall around your open source project, but not so much to reject the tests, but to reject a feature implementation because its tests are not yet sufficient. So if somebody wants to add a feature, well, of course, you're probably going to demand, okay, where are the tests? Uh, suppose they then add some tests and you run mutation testing against that. It comes up with a huge horde of surviving mutants. You can say, hey, look, your tests, uh, while they may be a good start and they may cover the you know main happy path, there are all these other situations in which the tests will still pass with bad versions of the program. So the tests, we need some upgrading before you'll accept the feature. So how do I start doing it in Ruby? There are a couple of tools for Ruby. Unfortunately, I forgot to pull up my, uh, the final slide of my presentation that has in the speaker notes the difference between some of them. Uh, if I remember rightly, the big one is Mutant. And it is moving to a closed source paid model, but the author, Marcus Sherp, is leaving the latest open source version out there for anyone to still use and for free. And if I remember rightly, he's letting open source projects use even the paid version for free. So there is, there's a good one right there. Uh, there was one... A while back, I'm forgetting whether that was Mutest or Heckle. One or the other of them was only compatible with RSpec, and my current main client doesn't use RSpec, so I didn't look too much further into that. But it was a fork of Mutant, and then both continued to be separately developed, so it may be worth looking at. And then there's the other one, I think it was Heckle, that just hasn't been updated in a very long time, is not compatible with more recent versions of Ruby. I'm actually kind of imagining this as being a reasonable tool for anyone, whether consultant or senior dev on a team or whatever, anyone that's trying to make the argument that, hey, our test suite isn't doing what it's supposed to, but I... Mm -hmm. But it's not obvious because we're passing the code coverage metrics for some reason, you know, things like that, right? Um, yes. So I definitely see it as like a tool to help evaluate, or perhaps if you're doing auditing, things like that might 
I, I definitely can see some room in that space. Yes, uh, it's helping support the point that a lot of people have been making over the past couple of years that high or even 100% code coverage by your test suite is a good start, but it's nowhere near sufficient. Sure. All, all that a code coverage statistic will usually show you is that some test ran this line of code. Did it make a difference? Eh, who knows? And that's what mutation testing helps figure out. Yeah, to me, it's the, there's a bug. And so you go track down the bug and it's, well, it's in this code that's all completely tested, right? <laughs> yes, it's and completely then, covered by tests, but is it completely yeah. tested? That's two yeah. different things. Yep. Well, even if you think you were complete, right? Yeah, this this will expose mm-hmm. that before you run into it. And yeah, I, I like it, like John's saying, as a sanity check, right? So you just run it periodically and then mm-hmm. go fix any issues it exposes. And that way you know that you have complete coverage of your code on your test. And I'm not talking about that coverage metric. I'm talking about that it actually gets covered, right? And so yes, from the there... semantic coverage. Right. And so then, then you can lean on it a little bit more and you can also start having conversations about, okay, what do we keep missing in our tests and how can we make it better? Right, and that ties back to the earlier example of, gee, I keep forgetting about when this should be strictly greater than versus greater than or equal to and you know, start paying a little more attention to that. Yeah. To make an analogy to something I know Charles would understand, uh, if... Your Toastmasters Club's ah counter keeps telling you you had 57 <laughs> ahs, ums, you knows, likes, and so forth during the meeting. Uh, you're probably going to start paying a little more attention to your use of filler words, not only in your Toastmasters speeches, but everything else you say at the club meetings and in the rest of your life. It will carry over. And I used to have a bit of a problem with ahs and ums and such. And paying attention to it fixed that right up. Yeah, I still struggle with that. So one little note about that, I'll chime in for now. Uh, There I just went with an uh. Because I do the Drift and Ruby recordings and I edit them afterwards, I found initially when I was doing it, the more ums and uhs that I added into the recording, the longer the editing took. <laughs> so I learned how to save time by not adding in uhs and ums when I'm recording. Yes, if you want to stop doing something, make it somehow painful to you. I've heard oh, yeah. of some people who will put a rubber band around their wrist and then snap it every time they uh, catch themselves saying ah or um or whatever. Similarly, when I was trying to lose weight a while back, I had a spreadsheet that would make a nice smooth trajectory from the weight I was on January 1st to where I wanted to be on December 31st. Every pound I was over, I had to do an extra (laughs) push-up. Makes sense. So do you just install the mutant gem then? And I mean, how much setup is involved? It's been a while since I've done it. So I don't remember specifically with respect to mutant. I remember there being something about telling it, okay, this test covers this method. And I don't remember if there was some way to tell it uh, that it covers multiple methods and whatnot. But anyway, you tag it like that, and it can be rather tedious on a large code base, but at least it's conceptually simple. And if your tests are well-organized, uh, it should be fairly simple with some little editor macro tricks, whether you're using Emacs or Vim or whatever. And then you start it up, let it rip, and come back in a while and start looking at the huge volume of mutants it has probably generated. What I've usually done is then just pick a mutant, see what the change is that was made to create that mutant. Okay, how is this surviving? What should I do to catch it? Add a test. And then don't usually bother with any of the other mutants on that particular method because adding that one test is probably going to kill a very large number of mutants. So then I'll move on to some mutant of a different method. And once I've done that for every 
method that has some surviving mutants. Yeah, then maybe rerun it. This should be not terribly much effort, but it may actually take a while in wall clock time because of running the mutants. Does this work with the like end-to-end tests? So like if you're using Capybara or Selenium or things like that? Ooh, interesting question. I have only applied it to unit tests, and I think that is the main purpose. But I suppose one could do something like that. Hmm. It would have pretty much the entire system to pick from to mutate. So uh, if we go that way, that would have potential to generate a huge number of mutants. I think that's probably why I have not seen that much. So my wild guess would be that's possible, but mm, does not strike me as being all that much useful. I was just actually during during uh, our chat here, I was like, I was looking up some of the history of mutation testing just uh, as you were saying things, and I didn't feel like we really asked too much in there. And it kind of seems like mutation testing has been around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. However, it's actually been due to the fact that it's really expensive to do mutation testing. It's only really been in modern times that people have actually really been able to do it uh, in some sort mm-hmm. of like effective manner. And so I wonder if, you know, I mean, let's be honest, trying to put a feature test through mutation testing sounds extremely expensive. Well, the way we computer people tend to use the term expensive, yeah, it'll soak up a fair number of CPU cycles. In the way the normal public uses the term expensive, like, oh, it's going to cost hundreds of dollars. No, no, no. It'll use up maybe a couple more nickels or dimes worth of CPU time. However, as for the history, I suppose we can delve into that a little bit. It's actually been around since 1971. And when I say 19, anything people would be surprised, let alone 71. It was part of a term paper by a guy whose name I'm blanking on at the moment. Like I said, I forgot to pull up my keynote presentation. I actually Uh, have it here if you want it. Richard uh, Lipton. Ah, yes. Richard Lipton in his term paper, Fault Diagnosis of Computer Programs. And the first tool didn't appear until... 1980 as part of Timothy Budd's PhD research at Yale, and not much was done with it for the next couple decades or so. But around 2000 or so, the reasonably cheaply available computers started getting much faster with more cores, faster cores, larger, cheaper memory, and so forth. And then mutation testing kind of took off after that. It was no longer something you needed to devote your mainframe to. You could now do it on a consumer-grade machine. So, I mean, shoot, for me, prior to today, the assumptions that I had made about mutation testing when I had heard people talking about it in the rare case that it happened were definitely wrong. And I thought that it was very apropos at the very beginning of your talk that you were just like, ah, you what you probably think mutation testing is wrong. I, I mean, I didn't think that it had anything to do with DNA, but it's still wrong anyway. Now, after being familiar with it for like about four hours, I'm like, huh, so I, I definitely see some value. I do kind of feel, especially after like looking up the history and things like that, I I kind of feel like we're kind of in that point where there's clearly some value propositions for this in, in certain narrow cases. Um, and then there's some arguable things, right? Like I think you were proposing earlier, please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounded like you were saying that you actually kind of see some value in, okay, uh, I just made a commit uh, mutation test on the commit that I just wrote, just as you would maybe run your test suite right then and there. Sort of. The way I've usually seen it used in comp- in conjunction with commits is basically to mutation test what has been done since the last commit. Uh, I suppose there may be some tool that has some mode that says, 
compare what I have committed to the commit before that, which sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking what I just committed, right? Like uh, using, um, darn it, what's that tool that we were all using before GitHub Actions and stuff like that? Started with a P or whatever. They would just run on your last commit or whatever. Maybe no one remembers. Maybe I was the only one who used it. Anyway, that's fine. But I was saying, but you can all, you could trigger like a tool like that, right? That would compare your last mm-hmm. commit to what you just committed. Uh, and, yes, and that's part of a, a post commit hook. Pronto, right? You do it in a post commit hook or something, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. And then maybe run it. I guess what I was, I wasn't trying to put words in your mouth. I was trying to say, like, I definitely could see someone maybe arguing that there's value there. But I feel like that's a little more gray and nebulous. Uh, yes. Maybe the value isn't as clear. Uh, well, it might not be clear to those who don't see the, the value of mutation testing in the first place. But once you see the value of mutation testing, then it becomes fairly clear that, hey, the more you can just automate it instead of having to remember to run it, like putting it in a post commit hook or putting it in your CI or uh, make it part of your nightly build process if you do that, whatever, just some way you can, without having to think about it, just run a mutation testing tool on at least what's changed recently or you might want to do your whole code base, you know, overnight just in case some things interact, whatever. And that can give you a signal without having to expend further manual effort. Uh, if it comes up clean, there are no surviving mutants, so you don't have to actually do anything. Yeah, I, I think I was trying to get to something along those lines, which is, to me, I think the sort of introductory drug, so to speak, right? Like the thing that might get you into it in <laughs> the, the first gateway. place would be, yeah, I mean, like run it. I, I, I think I'm seeing what I plan to do with it, right? Is run it once against something that I want to evaluate and and get a sense for something from there and then get a feel for how the tool works versus what I'm getting out. Yep. So you, you've said this has kind of uh, been around for a while, but it's it's a thing that's becoming possible. Do you think this is going to be the next big thing? Do you think this is going to be become a, 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 a the next CI? I don't think it's going to uh, really replace CI, but it would be one of the things frequently added to the things your CI does. There's a number of companies that will have CI run not only the test suite, but also tools like RuboCop and Reek and Flog and Flay and so forth and Sandy Meter and whatnot to ensure that the code is of good quality. And such companies may well add also running a mutation testing tool to make sure that their tests are of good quality and that their code is meaningful. So you see, this isn't going to be something which is going to replace those parts of the CI, but if people have already got kind of uh, the the old sandy meter in there, maybe this is something they also want to look at. Yes, just another quality assessment tool. It's another tool in the toolbox. It's not a new toolbox. I'm really struggling to think up a different word than mutants. Mutants is just so evocative. I thought of calling it calling it rogues, you know, and then you could kind of kill the rogues, but that's uh, that's obviously not doesn't sound very good for this podcast. Um, no. Alterations, deviations. Oh yes, get rid of the deviants. <laughs> for those of a more conservative bent, might uh, be up for that. That's totally way better than mutants. Anyway, (laughs) who came up with deviance? Well, uh, Uh, from a deviation, you would have a deviant. Yeah, that's that's awfully good. Uh, Anyway, enough people call it mutation testing already. That uh, I think that term's a little too well embedded to have much chance of changing. But we can possibly affect a little bit of change in some of the other terms like killing the mutants. As I mentioned earlier, I'm trying to come up with a better word for that that's a little nicer to the mutant, poor little thing. And so far, I'm leaning towards covering the mutant, just like code should be covered by a 
test that passes, the mutant should be covered by a test that fails. At least one test out of all the applicable tests should fail, and that will cover it. Unfortunately, that word already has somewhat of a meaning in the mutation testing terminology repertoire, if you will. Some people are already using covered to mean that the line that was mutated was covered by a test. Fighting a bit of an uphill battle on that one. So I'm trying to figure out how we can use some other kind of nice beneficial word, something we want to do, something that's good for the mutant. Other terms I've come up with is to rescue the mutant from the plight of being out there without a proper failing test. That's a whole other thing we can muse on endlessly. Clearly, we need to have some virtual beer gatherings and discuss this further. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I've got, uh, well, no beer at the moment, but uh, I got a fair stock of whiskey downstairs and some mead brewing. You weren't one of these guys that went out and bought up all the Corona when it started. (laughs) Uh, No, but neither was I one of those people who deliberately stayed away from it uh, out of fear of the virus. (laughs) I mean, he said he said whiskey and and mead. I feel like he's probably not a Corona drinker. No, he's probably but, like a porter and stout drinker. That's where. Yes, exactly. I'm a Scotch drinker. That's where I go. So, <laughs> I think we've devolved into picks. Sorry, sorry, guys. <laughs> all right, all good. But uh, yeah, then you can pick all the mead and Scotch and whiskey you want. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I use to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash jobbook. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So yeah, let's let's go ahead and head that way. John, do you want to do some picks? Yeah, I can I can start us out. Uh, so I, I don't have a scotch pick this week. Um, <gasps> but well I did I did a bunch of my scotch picks already. So you can go back to previous episodes. And I haven't bought a new scotch that I want to pick in, in a little while. So and I haven't picked up I have a target one that I have to try before I can pick it. Anyway, so my pick for this week is uh, I have been cleaning out my basement so that we can, you know, finish it, make it all nice. Long-term project, of course. But it was previously filled with the the previous owner of this house had a wood workshop down there. So the entire basement completely covered in sawdust just everywhere. And, And maybe this is really a PSA pick, but I didn't know this before before this project, but uh, man, air compressor is pretty amazing for like getting sawdust out of your rafters and uh, totally worth it in every way and totally worth the two days of me like having trouble with my allergies because there was a gigantic dust cloud, but it got it out of the rafters and now there's no more like dust falling from the rafters. It was pretty awesome. Hopefully you're wearing an N95 mask when you're doing that. I was not wearing an N95 mask because I figured that I didn't need an N95 mask. I just had a regular dust mask, which you know was better than nothing, but wasn't that amazing. Also, I have a beard, so I'm pretty sure that I don't qualify it like it doesn't fit my face or something. Yeah, I've, I've heard things about that. I, I have to say my quarantine beard is going away because I'm, I'm going to start recording some video and I want to look like me. That's one of the advantages of having already established that looking like me includes this beard. <laughs> yep. I, I'm changing the shape of my beard. I had a beard before. It was, a, it was you know, more or less like a goatee and a small beard. But uh, my wife, like, actually tried to convince me to grow, which is weird, but she tried to convince me to grow a more full one. So we'll see how it turns out. Anyway, that's my pick. Awesome. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. So in spirit of power tools, I did unfortunately have to go out and get a cordless cutout tool. So it's a DeWalt 
cutout tool and you use it to cut out drywall pieces. So my son figured out that sheetrock is very fragile. So if you punch or kick the wall, you're going to put holes in them. So I went around fixing some drywall. And before, I've always done it with just one of our steak knives to try to cut the drywall to make it in a nice shape that I can replicate to then patch. But holy moly, a proper cutout tool for the job is amazing. Cuts down the amount of time and effort required by magnitudes. Nice. Yeah, those tools are really nice. And man, the the drywall cutters, especially those saws, they cut through a real, real slick. Yep. All right, Luke, what are your picks? I've been coding with my feet. It's got a bit weird in the quarantine and I've been coding with my feet. So this is something I've been doing for a while when I started out in IT. And the idea is you have a foot pedal that you hook up if you're kind of running a kind of a restarting a server or compiling. Uh, and you have that linked to a pedal on the floor. You hook it in with some Linux or some Mac Magic, and uh, then you're controlling the computer with your feet. It might not work for you, but my God, it doesn't work for me. And what I advise is getting a real cheap USB foot pedal off Amazon. I'll post it in the chat. And if you find that is useful, if you're doing a lot of kind of jobs where to avoid switching to a different window or context switching or even some kind of cryptic Emacs or Vim macro, you can just hit a pedal on the floor. I find it hugely enjoyable to operate computers and code with your feet. So there we go. All right, very cool. I'm going to throw in a few picks of my own. So lately I've been listening to... So when I lay down at night, I kind of have to just have something that I can listen to without really thinking too much about it. And so I've been listening to the Iron Druid Chronicles lately. Those are by Kevin Hearn. And uh, I've listened to them all before. Didn't particularly love the ending. Kind of feels like Game of Thrones, right, folks? But the books are really fun. And so uh, I've been listening to those as I kind of drift off. And I'm really liking it. So I'm going to pick that. Another pick that I have is... So I was putting together a debate for the local um, county party. And, uh, you know, so we had all, all of our candidates for county recorder come on and uh, I asked them a bunch of questions and stuff like that. I don't know how I wound up being the moderator, but I did. I think it was because I know how to use Zoom. And so I would just mute everybody <laughs> when it wasn't their turn. But that said, I needed a, a countdown clock or a timer that would work that I could put in landscape mode on my phone because that's the only way it would fit on this little tripod that I'm putting it in front of my camera with. And so... To make a long, long story short, I found a little timer. It's called Flip Time. Worked great. So people were super happy with that. The only downside to that was that my webcam, when I would talk, was pointed at my phone saying that whoever's turn it was had zero seconds left because I hadn't reset it. So, But worked, worked super well. And uh, so I was pretty happy with that. So I'm going to pick that. And then the last pick I have is my truck didn't pass uh, emissions right before I... When, you know, before the quarantine. And so uh, I know what part I need and I just haven't gotten around to going to get it. Don't particularly want to go anywhere. I'm not that worried about coronavirus here. There have been really, really few cases here in Utah. But I just, I'm kind of used to just staying at home and having stuff show up. So uh, Rock Auto, if you need auto parts, rockauto.com is terrific. Um, you can also go to car-parts.com if you're willing to like go down to a junkyard and pull it out of a vehicle. And I've done that before for some of the bigger pieces, you know, like doors or side panels, or I've actually replaced an engine in a vehicle before. So, so that works out pretty well. You know, I, I think I've also replaced the, the gearbox for your transmission. So stuff like that, where it's rather big, rather expensive, and you can get it a whole lot cheaper if you're willing to go do a little elbow work. But yeah, um, so I'll pick Rock Auto. It's rockauto.com and car-parts.com if you're looking for used parts. A lot of times they'll actually have pulled them out at the junkyard. It just depends on what you're looking for. But yeah. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to pick those for auto parts. Dave, what are your picks? Yeah, I assume you mean me this time, not the other Dave. And (laughs) Okay. uh, Earlier we were talking about whiskey and mead. So I'm going to pick first Flaviar, which is a company that ships you whiskey or gin or whatever spirit of choice 
membership is you know, a little pricey, but then you get uh, tasting boxes and free shipping on some bottles and they give you some credits in their store. I will send later my referral link to put in the show notes. And as for the mead, I will pick the Joe's Ancient Orange Mead recipe. Again, I'll send a link to put in the show notes. I had a hankering to brew a batch of mead. Wasn't going to schlep down to the homebrew store. It's like six or seven miles away to get some mead yeast. But I was inspired by a friend of mine saying she had some baking yeast to give away. So I went and looked up, hmm, can one make mead with baking yeast? And apparently there's this fairly simple recipe, Joe's Ancient Orange Mead, that uses regular baking yeast. As for some other things we were talking about before the show, long story short, I've been having some nasal congestion at night, so the combination of Breathe Right strips, nasal saline rinse, and these cups with the lid with the straw through them, very useful, help me sleep at night. That's uh, about it. That Flaviar thing actually sounds kind of cool. Yeah. I'm like on their website right now. This is, this is exact. I might be a member very soon. (laughs) You may have seen in my recent Twitter history, the quarantine supplies have arrived. That was all from Flaviar. The only thing, uh, we'll, we'll see. But yeah, the only thing is it's like, it's basically like two bottles of scotch which is roughly how much I buy a year. So I have to I have to think about that. But it's super awesome. They freaking send you like sampling kits. Mm-hmm. That is the fastest way to explore. Yeah, I have to think about this. I'm like 18 bottles in. So I feel I feel like I'm like not a connoisseur, but like that I am experienced. And so that has become a decision for me. Yes. I could totally see this if I were young. All right. It's clearly a hard decision. It sounds awesome. All right. Good deal. Well, Dave, if people want to reach out to you, find you online, ask you questions about this stuff, where do they find you? I'm on Twitter as Dave Aronson, D-A-V-E-A-R-O-N-S-O-N. Same thing with LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Dave Aronson. Uh, I've also got a horribly outdated website at codosaur.us because my company name is Codosaurus. That's C-O-D-O-S-A-U-R dot U-S. And I think those will do. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. This has been fun. Yeah, lots of fun for me too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. We'll just wrap it up right there. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.